Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Indisposable Podcast. Every once in a while on this show, I get a chance to interview someone who has been a big personal influence in my own journey to being the host of a reuse podcast. And this episode is definitely one of those. We are here today with someone who is a bit of a living legend in the sustainability field, and that is Bill McDonough. And for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Bill's work, he's an architect and a designer. He popularized cradle to cradle thinking through his 2002 book, his green building and industrial production redesign projects, and his outspoken thought leadership to shift our language and practices to design cradle to cradle reuse service instead of consumable products. He's also the co-founder of the nonprofits Green Blue, Sustainable Packaging Coalition, and the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. And more recently, he co-founded Fashion for Good, which is a joint industry initiative aiming to transform the global apparel chain into a force for good. And he's been on the faculty at Stanford, Cornell, UVA, King Abdullah University of Science and Tech in Saudi Arabia, Time Magazine recognized him as a hero for the planet, and Fortune Magazine a few years ago named him one of the world's 50 greatest leaders. And his work has been a big influence on me personally, as well as the broader movement. I was in college at Bill's alma mater, actually, majoring in environmental studies when Cradle to Cradle came out. And so I followed his work and some of his case studies and read his book, and his thinking has been a big influence on my own thinking about circular economics and design principles. And as many articles about him have pointed out, he also was able to bring sustainability ideas into the mainstream with big companies and celebrities with his uncanny ability to describe things in a obvious way that wasn't obvious before he said it. And you'll hear a lot of that in this interview. So we're really thrilled to have Bill joining us for this conversation, as well as joining our panel of honorary judges for the National Reuse Awards, aka the Reusies, which is the first virtual awards show for the reuse movement in the U.S. coming up in September of this year. It's presented by Upstream and Closed Loop Partners, and we've been busy narrowing down over a thousand nomination submissions for our judges to select finalists. And to learn more about this exciting event coming up, visit www.thereusies.org to stay updated. Definitely check out some of our other episodes with our judges who are all amazing thought leaders. And I very much hope you enjoy this conversation with Bill McDonough as much as I did. And without any further ado, after that long introduction, I want to welcome and thank Bill McDonough for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So Bill, you're most known for your cradle to cradle concept and redesigned thinking. And I want to start with the question of what is it about how most folks are taught design principles these days that needs to change to help us to bring more reuse systems into our world? That's an interesting question because I don't know that if we get to people when they're learning as professionals, we're kind of too late. Hmm. I think the education for this really starts at birth. And I know for me, when I look back at what made me think the way I think, um, it just my first and earliest memories of childhood, it's like Wordsworth said, the visions of immortality through recollection of earliest childhood. Mm. So looking back 
when I was a baby, I was I was born in Japan right after the war, and my parents spoke Japanese, and we lived in a Japanese house, and um, my father had been on MacArthur's staff as Japanese language officer, and we used to listen to the ox carts come into the city at night on the cobblestones, their big oak wheels, uh, to collect our sewage from our latrine, and and then take it to the farms for composting for fertilizer. So as a baby, we'd been woken up every night. My mother would come in, and she was from Alabama, and she would sing us American folk tunes in Japanese, making up words about poop and night soil and the honey wagons. And and so you're a child, and your mother's singing you songs about poop to put you back to sleep. It's so much fun. It's like heaven. So <laughs> as a child, it was the cities and the farms were all one thing. And then as I grew up, mostly in Asia, we'd go in our summers to the Puget Sound, where my grandparents lived in a log cabin. And they recycled everything and reused everything, everything. And so I thought that was normal. Mm. Grew there, you know, grew food, traded with neighbors, were weavers and shared things. And it was astonishing. And so I always thought that's the way it's supposed to be. And so I think it really is start early and practice often. So I think for designers, they, they might have to do a little bit of scrubbing that hard drive and start asking some fresh questions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that reminds me, one of my earlier visions for how to make a difference was to make systems thinking oriented children's books that taught some of these principles of when you're reading the kids' bedtime stories at night. I'm working on that right now. You are? I am. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Um, for those who aren't exposed, which is unfortunately many people in our modern culture, um, you know, people who live in urban areas and just don't get that kind of early childhood exposure to the design principles of nature, how right. do you see what's your sort of vision for intervention and, and how the school system can help? Well, I, you know, from one aspect, I think the idea of interesting children in nature, no matter where they are, is so important to understand the idea of growth and regeneration and health. And, and, and that is the system of which we're a part. And I think understanding soil is fundamental because if we put the photosynthetic power of the sun combined with carbon from the atmosphere and water and minerals from the earth, you end up creating humus. So we end up creating biology out of physics and chemistry. And that is an astonishing thing, life itself. And so let the children celebrate life. And it's interesting to note that the word human is a derivation of the word humus. Isn't that interesting? We are the soil people. So I think one thing is to let the children learn about soil, no matter where they are. And so if they're in a city, then, you know, take everything that is gray that doesn't need to be gray or hard and make it soft. So when I do my urban planning work, we look at gray to green. We look at hard to soft. So we prefer soft and we prefer green. Um, and you only need hard surfaces if you're going to drive on or something. You know? So you get into that kind of thing. We have horse paving, you know, for the water and things like that. So you just celebrate the natural world. That's first. And you know, the kids like that. And one of the ways to connect that is through food. So I think growing things when, when I was in New York, we were 17 years in New York before I moved 
to be the dean at University of Virginia um, 25 years ago. And uh, that, that our Christmas gift every year uh, from the office was to go to Harlem and we worked with children there during the year to take empty lots and convert them into gardens, into organic gardens, and we do it carefully. And we were led by a woman named Bernadette Cozart, who was just astonishing, third grade teacher kind of person. And we had all these kids, and they'd come out, and they didn't know, you know, we'd have fun, and we'd say, where does a tomato grow? They go, oh, underground. Where does a peanut grow? Oh, on trees. You know, like, mm-hmm. where's milk come from? You'd be amazed how disconnected these kids were from those stories, but they love the stories. So we gave them a little, their, their little memento of our events was a, a beautiful small trowel uh, of aluminum that had their name engraved on it. And they were the cutest thing. I mean, they were precious to them. They held them close to their hearts and it was their little shovel. And they were just all over this place. And, and when they could eat something they grew, you know, it was life-changing. So I think that's really important is yeah. study, think, become part of the natural world and then go from there. That's really important. And on the technical side, just we think of it as technical nutrition. And so it wants to be circular and it wants to be seen as a service. So things in the technosphere are objects of human intention and use. Okay. Things in the biosphere are regenerative. Mm-hmm. So I characterize this as the regenerative biosphere and the circular technosphere. So mm-hmm. our presentation of the circular economy concept, which we did in China in the early 90s, um, then we introduced it in Davos and people in Europe have taken it up. But they're, thankfully, they're using our protocol of the biological nutrients and the technical. And so I think first think biological. So we're doing things in packaging now that I'm very excited about. We're doing very advanced but very ancient types of packaging strategies in both the regenerative biosphere and circular technosphere. I'd love to talk more about what you guys are doing in packaging and your perspective, because that's a topic we obviously spend a lot of time on this show because we work with a lot of folks trying to build reuse economy in the food system, which involves a lot of packaging. Um, and we're working with the challenge of single use products and the mindset of single use, um, Mm -hmm. versus reuse or recyclability and compostability. And there's a lot of debate about, you know, what the best solutions are there. It was something we talk about a lot. So I'd, I'd love to hear your take on the current trends of compostable or recyclable or single use and how you see those different approaches fitting within a cradle to cradle philosophy. Well, we uh, we were very involved in setting that agenda in Europe and with various people like the Elmer Carth Foundation or the European legislation of the British. And the conclusions, after lots of sifting through things, uh, of saying critical issues are reuse, recycle, and compost. And not biodegrade, compost. That's a subtle but important distinction. And at this point, because of the language. And so there's your basics. But if we go back to early, you know, U.S. efforts, we had reduce, reuse, recycle, if you recall. Mm-hmm. And that's because we we were looking at litter. And when you look at a lot of the, like the famous Indian advertisement from Keep America Beautiful, what happened is all of a sudden we started saying, well, you consumers, quote, are the problem because you're littering. 
And for me, it's like, well, that's a problem. But if we design things that become litter, then we also have a design problem because it's almost as if our intention was to create litter. So, oh, so it's really a big design problem. So I see it as a whole hierarchy of design assignments that essentially come back at the end to it should be either compostable, and I mean that not biodegradable, because today we have a term that we see a lot, oxodegradable. We want people to see that. Oxodegradable doesn't mean that it's going back, for me, to hydrogen, oxygen, carbon. That's what I want. That's compostable. That's different. Oxodegradable can mean it's degrading because it allows oxygen into polymer for feed microbes and so on. But it's not necessarily going past the concept of a microplastic or even a nanoplastic even. That's now causing grave concern because mm -hmm. we see it, these tiny particles being able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier of fish. So, you know, we can't even figure that out. Cancer research had to do that. And here we are out messing around with the fish. So what does that mean to our bodies? You know, so that worries me. So I like going back all the way to hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, or water and carbon, or however you want to frame it. And then on the recyclable, the, we, you know, we can say recyclable, but if it doesn't get recovered, well, then it's not going to get recycled. And, and then when we hear the word recycled, I get concerned because I have a lot of people, especially when I was chairman of the Meta Council for Circular Economy for the World Economic Forum in Davos, and there's all these circular economy initiatives going on. And people would get up and go, yay, we're circular, therefore we're good. And I'd be thinking, but if you made a toxic garment and you're recirculating it, is that good? Mm -hmm. You know, no, we did a bad thing in the first place. Now we're doing it again. That's worse. Yeah. Think about it. So is circular good? No. Circular is a quantification, not a qualification. So first we want good things. Then we want to circulate them again. Okay. So it brings us always back to that core question of design. And, and so I think that's the part that is exciting right now. So we design based on a hierarchy that's bigger than this. The first is refuse. And so I think in the world of single-use plastics, that's the first thing you do. You refuse. Mm -hmm. Right? We say, no, I don't want that. Okay. So that's first. Then we reduce. Fine. So let's minimize our negative footprints. Fair enough. So we reduce. Third is reuse. And because if I have things that I can reuse them, I don't need more. And I do that. We're very involved in that. We're working on a system right now in the UK that is exquisite in reusable packaging. I can't wait. We're going to announce it in sort of at COP26. We're going to be in Glasgow because it was invented by Glaswegians. So it's going to be very exciting. Um, and then before we get to recycling, we say you have to have recover because if you can reuse stuff you have, but if you can't recover these other things, then we can't manage them. Mm -hmm. To give something value, you need concentration and flow. You have to be able to get it concentrated and you have to be able to move it to give it value. And that's part of the problem. Our stuff is so dispersed and so varied. I mean, how many kinds of plastic are there? Think about that. And then if we think about natural systems, and systems thinking, 
We love diversity in biology. I mean, we have to support it and celebrate it all the time. Celebrate all of us in our differences, celebrate all the birds, all the plants, and it's just a fabulous thing. Diversity is key. But all of a sudden, in the world of human technology, you know, I want 6,000 species of bird or 400 kinds of French cheese. So in biology, it's delightful. Uh, but in technology, I don't know that we need 400 kinds of French plastic. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think like even in the plastics world, what we really see is mechanical recycling and chemical recycling, ultimately. That's, that's basically the partition here. So if we have thermosets like PET, it can be mechanically recycled, right? And then if we have other things like the polyolefins and so on, uh, some of them can be managed in close proximity to the existing product. But typically, over time, they're degrading. So you can do it once or twice. and then. But ultimately, that's going to have to go back to chemical recycling. And because otherwise, it's just garbage, refuse. So that's going to be a really big challenge on, of the species is to get that figured out. And it's important we do. It's probably half of all the stuff out there is probably going to be a candidate for an intelligence system around that. Um, so... I think that's an important notion is we have to be able to recover. So we see right now we're designing the future of sachets and, and film packaging using compostable thinking because that we call those fugitives. We're designing fugitive for fugitive conditions. So a little plastic, you know, film or sachet or K-cup or a pouch or something, when it gets to the, certainly in this country, and it gets to the MRFs, they can't deal with it. They, it, it slips through the rakes. Uh, it's not concentrated. It's contaminated with various things. And so it's a mess. And so we think things that might go fugitive and blow out on the wind or get to the oceans and so on, the rivers, they should just be safe and return to hydrogen oxygen and uh, carbon. And so we're working on that. I'm very excited about it. We've had some fabulous breakthroughs. So that's going to be that's important. But that's because we can't recover it is too small or it's not valuable enough and we can't concentrate it you see but we should concentrate it we should recover it so we have strategies for that too um because there are certain recovery systems that are already in place that we can take advantage of like paper for example uh, when's the last time you saw a sea turtle strangled by a, a paper bag yeah and then we can talk about recycling but with recycling if you're in a circular economy of contaminated products like you know, with PVC or something, then you're downcycling. And if you recycle, that means re, so you bottle to bottle or whatever. And then there's upcycling, which I wrote a whole book about, which is the upcycle. And that's when, in our mind, it's when you improve the product quality. Don't just change form. Some people think upcycling would take a bottle and turn it into a fleece. Or yeah, what's an example? Because yeah. I know not everyone is familiar with that idea yet, and it's such an important one. Well, the idea that we get stuff back that's not optimized, for example, in that in biological technical cycles, and then say we're going to improve it. See, that's what I like: constant improvement. So some people would say, well, if I take a plastic bottle and make a fleece, you know, so now it's a garment out of a water bottle that. It's upcycling, or it's more valuable use of those polymers. And you have to be careful because sometimes we have heavy metal contaminants like antimony residues from a catalytic reaction, PT, nanoparticles, catalysts, when you wash it, whatever. 
Yeah, well, that's that shows up in the. It's now everybody's worried about microplastics, and nano, which is a very th- good thing to be thinking about. So that that you're, for us, if you look at a clear plastic PET bottle that can hold water, food grade, that's a very high quality thing. When you think about it, I mean, if you're dying of thirst in the desert, and somebody walks up to you, this thing, you're going to like every bit of it. You know? So, so there, it's a, it's the plastic is quite pure. So. If you take that and then contaminate it with all kinds of other stuff, you've downcycled it because it's really on its way to a park bench or a flower pot. Or and that something. often happens when you put the labels and the, yes. the lining and all these things that contribute to, in some way to either food preservation or branding. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. something that has a valuable core has all these layers and it's no longer upcyclable or even recyclable often. Right, or you've got a cap that's polypropylene, and you've got a bottle that's PT, and they go together, and they don't have a way of getting shredded and separated. So we've got refuse, reduce, reuse. No. Yeah, refuse, reduce, right. reuse, recover, which has subset. The recycle is a subset of downcycle, recycle, upcycle. Okay. I take your pick, and I pick upcycle. Recycle's good, but downcycle... Unfortunate. See if we can keep it higher up on the chain. Sorry. Then, then we have the regenerative universe. That's where we have compostable. And those are the things designed to go back to soil. And they have to be segregated so we can take them back to soil. So food waste which is a huge issue. But the packaging for food waste wants to be biodegradable and combustible. So we're seeing that now in Europe and the Italians and the French have that on their plastic bag legislation to have compostable bags for the food whereas they're they're you know dissuading people from using plastic bags but they're not dissuading them from plastic bags to handle food waste so that's very intelligent so uh the subtlety of all this is coming along certainly in the more advanced cycling scenarios but i'm very excited about this one it's a it's critical for soil regeneration and then there's uh refuse Spell the same as refuse, yeah. and refuse is all is garbage. It's it's things with which we know not what to do. So PVC waste is a very very big problem because it contaminates recycling of the polymers, and uh, in chemical recycling it's a nightmare because it produces hydrochloric acid, which will eat your equipment. So you know. Uh, you can't use steel anymore. You got to use stainless steel. It's very expensive. So it should just be gone. P- PVC should not be in the packaging world whatsoever. So that kind of thing. And that's refuse. We don't know what to do with it. So we can just park it and get smart as we can and deal with it as time goes on, but not put it back in circulation in untoward ways. Yeah. One of my favorite, very simple principles is just that in nature, there's no such thing as waste, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. We've that's created, how we open cradle to cradle. Created a monster. <laughs> that's the opening line. Yeah, yeah. I must have remembered it from college. I told you, yeah. you're a huge influence. So. <laughs> There's no such thing. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Waste equals food. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, you touched on a couple of things, and one of the other threads I wanted to explore with you is um, about this principle of the safe and the circular, as you touched on a little bit earlier. And mm-hmm. one of the examples that I remember from from my college days of learning about one of your projects was the factory that you all worked on. 
Um, I think you're referring actually to a fabric design we did in Switzerland, um, where I was working with Michael Browngard, it's one of our first joint design projects. I was hired by Steelcase Corporation to design fabrics for, for seating. And I said, you know, along with some other architects, they call it portfolio series. So it's architects design seating fabrics. Mm-hmm. So they've written some very famous architects and then little old me in New York. And I said, I'll just, I'd love to design what, what it looks like, but I'd also like to design what it is. And could I do that? And they said, yes. And far fabulous person, Susan Lyons at Design Text, uh, led that. And then I brought Michael in as a chemist. And, um, and we started looking at things. And we looked at 8,000 chemicals in the textile industry and used intellectual filters of no more endocrine disruption, no more cancer, no more birth defects, no more, you know. And we started to sort through them. And we found ourselves able to move to only 38 chemicals in a defined system instead of 250. And it turned out that the water coming through the system ended up being as clean as the incoming, which is Swiss drinking water. Mm-hmm. In fact, it actually filtered out some carbonates, which are no big deal, but the water was on its way to Lake Constance in the Swiss Alps. So you don't pollute alpine rivers and lakes. So it was beautiful because that means you could reuse the water because you'd rather use your effluent than influent because it's defined. And you know what it is. And you know it's clean. Why get mystery water coming in when you've got you know knowledgeable water right here? So all of a sudden, you're closing loops and you're not contaminating anything. And and then you you start, you don't have regulations because nothing's dangerous. It's just a whole other way to think about it. We design regulations out of the products. I want unregulated products. I don't want them unregulated because I want to do silly things and I don't want people to poke at me. I want unregulated products so there's nothing to fear. Yeah. See? So that's the way to do it. Like that. It's a great principle. <laughs> yeah. And it's, so it's more cost effective. There's no paperwork. And um, it, so it ended up being very profitable to the company, and uh, it became the preferred seating fabric for the Airbus. So most people have actually sat on it. Yeah. And you have so many of these stories of, you know, once you redesign, it makes so much sense, and it's often more economical. Um, right. But I'm, I'm curious to hear you reflect a little bit on sort of the state of building the reuse economy in the U.S., and there's so many components to that. There's the design side, but then there's also building the infrastructure for bringing back the milkman, so to speak, you know, and having these systems for the recovery part of the process. Where yeah. do you see the biggest challenges, just kind of with that bird's eye view of the system? Well, on the reuse front, mm-hmm. uh, well, first, obviously, design, because that's where we start. But we can design things for reuse. I mean, famously, jam jars in Europe were drinking glasses. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you take the metal lid off and you have a glass. Um, but there's design. That's one. But I think one of the challenges I've seen is, see, we're designing a reusable packaging system right now. We'll be bringing it to the U.S. We're piloting it in the U.K. But where it, it works real well because there's a lot of hysteria around single-use. I, I don't think we have that quite here at the same density of interest. We're working on that. <laughs> yeah. I think the important thing for me is that what we're doing is democratizing it. Because if we're going to have a reuse system, it needs to be a system. It's not some cute trick that says, here, here's a reusable package, but we're shipping ice cream from 
California to New York in a stainless steel container and then shipping it back for cleaning. I mean, really? That doesn't, you know, it's not meant to be some little episodic, cute idea with a carbon footprint that is insane. You know, that's, that's, so I think we have to find the way that it becomes just the way it is and it's democratic. So people of all means can get to it. It's not guilt management, it's actually utility and joy of reusable objects. So that's what we're doing. So we program, we piloted it in one of the lowest income parts of the UK. Mm. And it was super to watch because, I mean, I, the stories were amazing. People would come in and you'd say, listen, you know, this is actually in the end saving you money because you have a reusable packaging. And and it's we're gonna, usually you start by buying your first one and then you're in the system and then it gets cleaned and they get reused. It's not literally the same one. You're just in the system. We have QR codes and all kinds of wonderful techniques. But, you know, that was so great because they go, oh, no, no, don't give it to me. I'm going to pay for it. I may not have a lot of money, but I'm dignified. And I'm part of this. I'm part of this. I want to buy it. And then they brought their children the next day to get theirs. It was so sweet because you're part of a, a way of life. I find that really exciting. So that's what I really am looking and hoping for is that the reusability and cradle to cradle and safe materials and optimized systems, whether they're biological, technical, becomes the way of life because it is the way of life. Yeah. And in that pilot, is the system operating more at a local level, all the different parts? Yes. yes. All sustainability, all sustainability in my, my world is local. I used to say that about Tip O'Neill. Remember he said all politics is local. And for me, all sustainability is local. The only way you can measure sustainability is where it's happening. So if forestry is going to be sustainable, you have to go talk to the forest. If communities are sustainable, you have to go talk to the community. If a packaging system is sustainable, we certainly reuse. We don't want a lot of logistics. It's very expensive and unnecessary. So we design things with no packaging at all. It's unnecessary. I love that part. We did one project where we took a walk around a major retailer and, and we went from department to department and saying, how can we change the package? And we were looking at a PVC blister pack on a windshield wiper in the car section. And we're going, what? You know, this is the stuff you have to attack with scissors to get in, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we sat with the buyer and we talked and, he, and a few weeks later, it was all done. And we came back and he had, he had just said, okay, now I've got a little paper thing here so I can hang it on a hook, right? And then I have, you know, something on the bottom if I need to, depending on form factor, this paper. But that's it. And the sales were up. And he got rid of all the all the plastic. And we just had a beautiful, small piece of paper. And he said the reason the sales went up is the customers could hold on to the windshield and say, wow, this is nice quality. Look at this rubber. Oh, interesting. So mm -hmm. isn't that interesting? So get rid of the package altogether. So, I mean, yeah. there aren't that many packaging consultants who walk in and go, get rid of it. You know? How about nothing? And so I think it has to be democratic. And, and the packaging system we're doing will be lowest possible cost, highest possible quality for communities. We've optimized so everybody gets the benefit together.
Yeah. Well, speaking of those kinds of examples of, of beautiful reuse solutions, I want to talk a little bit about the National Reuse Awards coming up. And mm. uh, first, just curious, what motivated you to say yes to being on the judges panel? Well, first of all, I was asked by someone for whom I have great respect. So that's a good start. Marion Hunt sent me a note and said, this would be a good idea. So uh, she's been part of Cradle Cradle Movement, too. So that was first. But also, I am concerned. I think if we start giving prizes to something that actually is problematic, I mean, I've seen people advertising, oh, kids, don't worry about your juice box. We're going to turn it into a pencil case. It's all good. And then you look at these pencil cases, and they're not post-consumer waste. They're post-industrial waste. And they're from Canada, and they get sent to Mexico to have a nylon zipper attached to it. And then it comes back as this sort of weird, monstrous hybrid pencil case, as if you're going to be safe, kids, because we're going to reuse your stuff for you. Oh, that's so sad. So one of the reasons is I want to hope that we won't have things that are not real or, or misleading children. That's the worst thing we can do. A little bit of quality control. <laughs> yeah, let's celebrate all the people who are doing something meaningful that's dignified. And let's yeah. be careful to avoid uh, just razzmatazz. Yeah. But it, it isn't real. Yeah. What are some, uh, and without naming specifics, because you are a judge, <laughs> what are some of the examples of the kinds of reuse systems that you are seeing? I think the, the their examples are myriad. And I think that's great. I think it's really amazing how many people are working on this way and thinking. So I think we should celebrate everybody. Yeah. I think we, though, we should be careful to not let things get overblown or, or actually misleading. Yeah. To your point earlier about the diversity as a principle in nature, you know, having all these different innovative approaches and as you're saying, some of them in the end are going to be more effective in helping us move forward than others. Yeah. But I think they all help us, whether they're sophisticated or unsophisticated, whether they're perfect or whether they're trying. I think it's great. It's really what we need to do now. Is, that's why the issue is, how about reusable? Great. Everybody have at it. Let's get this going. And so that's what's so exciting. How, how much energy people are putting into this. And it's an important idea. It's not a new idea. It's an ancient idea. Yeah. So that's great. We can bring back you know, the wisdom. See, I think what's interesting we need right now is not just smart. Every time I hear somebody say, you know, this is a smart you know, thing, like smart building. It's like, uh, smart building. You know, our buildings, some of them make produce more electricity than they're required to operate and give it to the neighbors. I call them buildings like trees. We've been doing this for 40 years. And, you know, it's not smart. It's wise. Mm -hmm. You know, it's wisdom. It's not just intelligence. Because what you find is if you look at Plato and Aristotle, Plato, you know, was looking for wisdom. He was looking for what is the right and the wrong, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. The moral, the immoral, those kinds of fundamental human values. Mm-hmm. And his student Aristotle was looking at how to act once you have that wisdom. He called it practical wisdom. And so he's looking at value. He's looking at number, truth in number. So Plato's looking for truth in beauty, humanities, and Aristotle's looking for truth in number, science, mathematics. And so it's great. You put these two together. 
But what you have to do is start with your values and then move to the number. If you start mm-hmm. with a number, you can't get to the values. You can just benchmark. Mm-hmm. So if you're just benchmarking, you're not taking advantage of the opportunity to go all the way to your values. And that's why I worry when I see people say, I'm being less bad, therefore I am good. That's a, it's idiotic because less is a numerical relationship. Bad is a human value. So you're, you're bad by definition, just less so. I was just going to say one of the things that, that you are known for and are demonstrating in this conversation is an ability to take these somewhat complex ideas and make them seem so simple and obvious and using really good language to help us with that. And I've, I've heard you do that a number of times in this conversation already. Um, and there's another one that I, you've been working with recently that I wanted to ask you about and this idea of waging peace through commerce by design. And I'd yeah. love to hear you tell us a little bit more about what that's all about. Well, that's what I call my little portfolio that I update all the time. And it's just available on my website. So it's a little book of what we've been doing over all these years. And we put the new projects in. and It's fun to look at. So I hope. Um, yeah. And I called it that because, again, my parents, uh, my parents were in Japan after the war because MacArthur knew that we would have absolute surrender. Have to with the Japanese. And so he trained 200 young American couples, uh, 100 at University of Michigan, 100 at University of Arizona, uh, prior to the signing of the treaty in Tokyo Harbor. And my parents were one of those couples. And they were cha- trained in Japanese language law and custom. And so my mother was one of the first American women civilians in Japan after the war. And what he did, it was amazing. He sent in these young, you know, army lieutenants basically and wives and 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 they went in without uniforms without weapons no mark jeeps no paperwork and he just said go and go make friends we just dropped two big bombs on and but we leave the emperor and you go make friends and that's what my parents were doing there and that's where i was born so we over the years we talked about it and it was essentially waging peace as fiercely as you wage war. Mm. Think about that. So the idea was go, but you got to do it, you know, go in peace and, and, and communicate and connect. So that's why they spoke Japanese. That's why they learned Japanese custom. And so I, I like that as a way of being and acting. And then waging peace through commerce. I work with commerce. I don't write policy papers. I don't work in government. I don't, I just design, you know, but I do it in business. I work with CEOs. I work with, um, I do work with heads of state. I do work with ministers and all that too, but I work at that level and I want to see business solved for this. Purchase orders are just as powerful as policy. Mm-hmm. So, but and they're faster. So, you know, if we want a hydrogen economy in Europe, we should be making hydrogen, green hydrogen in the deserts, where solar is now 1.4 cents a kilowatt. Mm. I love that idea of waging peace as fiercely as you wage war. That's really yeah. going to stick with me. And, yeah. and you know, and the, and the way that we engage this work, because it can seem like a war sometimes, you know, there's always yeah. humans love creating the drama triangle and creating an enemy, you know, but right. uh, to wage peace as your foundational thing and to have that vision of the future we want to be living in that's just and fair and where the planet is well cared for. Well, and the most powerful thing we have is commerce. It's fastest. 
Yeah. Let's do it. What do you think? We like to ask everybody this question. Um, what do you think one of the most uh, effective things our listeners can do to help accelerate the reuse revolution is for those who don't have access to designing commerce and in, in the ways that you do. Um, what are everyday ways that make a big difference? I think back, I mean, if somebody asked me, what am I reusing? You know, I have to come home to, you know, just check it out viscerally, whether I'm, you know, what am I doing about it? Cause it's not easy. Uh, and you know, one of my favorite things to do, I like to garden and I like to wear my grandfather's coat mm-hmm. and he was a lumberjack in the Pacific Northwest and they gardened and composted and all that. And so I wear his coat sometimes. And what I love about it, it's cotton. It's probably a hundred years old. Now. And there it is in the closet. And when I open the closet door, I go, oh, and I think of him. And so you could look at it as reuse, but I think they were very, they darn socks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like, I bet they had five pairs of socks his whole life because I've never seen socks that were basically made out of darning. But it was, they reused everything. And they went through the Second World War. And so it was part of the ethos. But I think part of that is that there's this idea of calling these things consumer products is the first problem. So change the language. Change this language. How could you call these consumer products when you can't consume them? You cannot consume a TV set. It's ridiculous, right? Uh, you can consume food, and you could consume some cotton fiber that goes back to soil. Okay, so yeah, but you can't consume technical objects and so on. So I would stop calling yourself a consumer. That's the first thing. Put that in your head. I love that. And then you start reusing. See, because I'm not consuming. You're a reuser. <laughs> I'm a reuser, yeah. and and I like the word reuse because. And people keep talking about designing for end of life. And I think that I understand life cycle assessment. And we do all that kind of stuff. It's science. I get it. It's from, you know, source to disposition and it's scientific. Problem is we call it end of life and life cycle assessment when it's not living things. We're calling an inanimate object having a life cycle. And that's because we put a human projection on it. So I think, I think telling the children that you're designing for the end of life, oh, very scary. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's not waging peace. So we're not designing for the end of life. We're designing for the end of use. Oh, that's cradle to cradle. Mm-hmm. See, it's providing a service. And you can lease it. You can do this. You don't you own the car. You want to use the car. And so that's what we wrote about in cradle to cradle is that there's this another model. A washing machine can belong to the washing machine company. You're using it. And they still have access to the metals and the rubber and the glass over time. You don't really care as long as you get clean clothes and it provides 2,000 washes and um, at a good price and save you money. So, so that whole idea, you know, we were accused of being communists because we didn't believe in ownership. But that's silly. Um, we want to utilize these things. So we designed for end of use. Then you design for next use because if it's end of use, well, then what's the next use? So now we design for next use. Welcome to the circular economy. Mm. So you also welcome to the reusable economy because we've designed it for next use. Well, next use is reuse. Reuse. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really important because we use strange language to defer to things. We call things natural resources. That's idiotic. Natural resources are natural sources. We don't use the word resources until we're using them again. Mm. Think about that. So just stop and think, oh, this is a resource. I'm going to reuse it. Okay? So it really does, I think, have a, Einstein said no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. So there is a shift. But the nice thing is it's shifting from this sort of clever, smart statistical significance back to ancient values, wise, meaningful, right? It's not just numbers, it's meaning. So I think the other thing would be for reusability is change the way we look at it instead of saying, I want to churn through all this stuff and I'm a consumer, is to say, I'm not a consumer, I'm a user, and then I'm a reuser. But there are things, there are three characteristics. There are things we want, we need, you know, massless hierarchy. We need this for you know, water, food, clothing, mobility. Then there's what we want, which might be mobility, but comfortable or fun to drive or I don't know, want. Right? So that's, you don't need that, but you would want that. And then there's love. So it's need, want, love. And so I think part of the key to reusability for me is love because I have all these things that I love and I actually love things. I have my favorite cup. Mm -hmm. I have my favorite gardening coat. I have my favorite, favorite clippers, you know? And so that's it. I don't, yeah, I don't need more. Yeah. Again, beautiful way of framing things. Um, and that, you know, upstream just did this rebrand around love is actually at the center of why we do this, you know, and there you go. Our, our logo has a heart in it now because for the organization, it's like, that's the value where this is a, a love for the future we want to be living in and the world we want to be creating. Exactly. Yeah. We call it intergenerational design. So we're designing across generations. That's always a good thing. I have one personal curious question for you, and I know we're a little over time, but I have to ask the the way that you rethink language is notable, interesting, <laughs> uh, perhaps part of your genius. And I'm curious, how does that process work for you? Um, do you tend to do you take walks? Like, how do you get yourself? This is the poet part of me that's just curious about you as a thinker. How do you? find those new ways of thinking and languaging when you're swimming in a sea where everyone else is talking about it in a certain way. No, it's fine. I think the fact that I grew up and went to 19 schools before college uh, in different places around the world meant a lot. And so, and also coming to Hong Kong from Japan where I've been speaking Japanese and English as a child and then coming to a place with Chinese and English, you know, and British English. And uh, that's the way I look at it. I'm still learning English. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> so I'm not really great with languages, but I'm, and I'm working on English as hard as I can. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of it. I'm, and I'm, but also I think there's a kind of lyric in, and, you know, I remember Van Morrison once said that the English accused the Irish of abusing the English language to their own advantage. So, um, you know, look at Joyce. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, it's, but I think there's that. It's that the poems, the poems, and in the ancient traditions of my ancestors, they called them the songs. So for me, the oral tradition was songs. And so they have a beat, they have a, have a cadence, have yeah. a cadence. Yeah. So I like to look for that. Even in the writing, when I'm actually writing by hand, I found that my writing changed if I was listening to Mozart or if I was listening to something else. It would, you, if you try it, it's really fun. Just start putting the beat into the hand mm-hmm. and start writing and go, da da, da da, da da. And it all turns into calligraphy. So it's the same with the words. If you stop and say, you know, I'm looking for the lyric. Mm-hmm. I, I That's so much fun. I remember Bob Dylan remarked in ten, Rolling Stone's 10th anniversary issue about the 10 favorite albums of the last 10 years and all these musicians. You get to Bob Dylan and he goes, his one album, that's all I remember. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, that was it. And this is when we, I was in college. Right? And, he, and it's like, oh, and he, he starts talking. He says, well, this is the only person I know that you knows how to use the word radio as a lyric. <laughs> and I, that's fun. You know, let's see how lyrical we can be. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it, it really contributes tremendously as well. I think people undervalue how important those, the elegant languages and, and meaningful language, as you said. And um, yeah, it's something I've really appreciated about how you speak and how you open people up and bring out the wonder in um, how, you know, the core elements of how nature works and learning from it. Um, yeah. I was called by an English professor who said he was using Cradle to Cradle to teach uh, in the English department in a famous uh, British university. And he said, the faculty is a little upset you're an American. But we're using it to teach rhetoric in the English language. And I said, oh, how delightful. He said, we don't teach the content. We teach the way you write. And I said, that's very interesting. He said, yeah, because I said, why? He said, because you have this weird way of discovering the obvious, allowing people to discover the obvious. Oh. See, because at the end of the book, you read Cradle Cradle, and four and a half hours later, you go, well, that was obvious. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't obvious at all before you read the book. But then at the end, it's obvious. And he said, that is rhetoric. When when somebody discovers the obvious, you've made your argument. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was very sweet. Yeah. It's a big, uh, you know, at Upstream and then in some of the other works projects that I work on, there's a lot of attention to, sometimes they call it culture hacking, but how can you shift hmm mindset and sometimes those little language hacks are are the leverage point so you have a lot of so um well i know i should let you go we're a little but thank you so so very much for making the time to speak with us my pleasure and of course for all you do and all you've contributed to this world and it's an honor to get to talk with you And, and for me thank you and that's our show If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. 
You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.